Well, it's good to be back, and um, uh, as Amy said, we had a great time down the southwest and enjoying Cornwall, a bit of Devon, did loads of great stuff as a family, we enjoyed the beach. Uh, if you've not been on the beach in high winds, you have not lived. Uh, the sand being sort of blown by you, the, 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 sort of the, the glow on your face as you reach home at the end of the day, and, and, the, and the question of, is that the sun or was that the wind? What is it? Am I sun-kissed or wind-kissed? You know, that, that's what it means to be British, folks. And so we were reminded of the, the beauty of being part of this wonderful nation with its fantastic, sometimes disappointing climate. And here we are. And while we were away, uh, many young people in our nation received their A-level and their GCSE results. And it would be fair to say that there were a few wrinkles in the system, a few glitches in the matrix. A dodgy algorithm led to thousands of A-level students receiving entirely unexpected grades. And one young woman, Nina Bunting Mitchum, a student from Peterborough, not too far from here, who had been hoping to study veterinary science, spoke for many when she confronted government minister Nick Gibb on the radio, live radio, and said, I feel my life has been completely ruined. I can't get into any universities with such grades or progress further in my life. Now, as feedback goes, that's pretty hard to hear for Nick Gibb. I think you'd agree. He took it well. Um, now, I heard about this moment, I saw this uh, on, in the news online, and initially I thought, gosh, that's a touch dramatic, that's a, a big thing to say. To say that your life has been completely ruined is a big claim. But then I sort of thought about it a bit more, and I've thought about what was going on. And I just actually, in reflection, I, I now can see that this is a classic case of somebody recognizing the power and the significance of a moment of transition. A moment where you shift from one place to another place. These moments of transition are so significant. And what Nina Mitchum had caught on to, had recognized, along with thousands of other students who felt powerless to control the next steps in their lives, was that there are certain times in life, times of transition, in which the impact of the things that happen to us is amplified because they happen at a time of particular significance. And what happens in these key moments to us has the power to impact our destination. You might even say our destiny, uh, if you like that kind of Disney language, even more than at other times. Now, having preached his inaugural message at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, over the last few weeks we've seen Jesus demonstrating his authority in his teaching, in his healing ministry, and in deliverance. What he's been doing is to cash out what he said he would do. He's been demonstrating what he spoke of. And the comment on him is that here is somebody with authority. We've been looking at that over these last weeks. And now Jesus arrives at another moment of transition in his life. It's one of the earliest moments and it's, it's of particular significance. And he has a decision to make. And the decision is, what kind of leader will he be? What kind of Messiah, king, figure will he be? 
Will he be the one who plays to the crowds? Or will he be the one who seeks the audience of one? And in this moment of transition, Jesus defines the rest of his future, but he also teaches us about how we should navigate moments of transition. And so what can we learn? We are, you would agree, wouldn't you, in a moment of transition. What can we learn from Jesus? Well, as Christine's already read to us, here's what we read. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. He went out to a solitary place. The first thing we see, the first thing to notice is Jesus' priority of prayer. The first thing he does in this key moment of transition, this stepping out into the new phase, is to prioritize seeking the face of his Father. Now it's interesting. In Luke... Unlike in Mark, Luke does not explicitly use the word prayer. Mark does. That's actually surprising because Luke's is the gospel in which a prayer returns as a continued theme. But for some reason, Luke doesn't have that word used here. But even so, it's clear that what Jesus is doing here is to carve out a space in this moment of transition for seeking God's face in prayer. There's no question that's what's going on. And in fact, this is what we see Jesus doing periodically in Luke's gospel, all the way through at these key moments. He seeks the face of the Father in prayer, particularly in moments of great transition. Now, It's important he does that because it'd be easy for him at this moment to be swept along with the tide of public opinion. It'd be easy for him to sort of water down his calling and be uh, moved with the winds of popularity. You know, Jesus at this moment is not having uh, a moment of failure. This is a moment of great success. He's effectively leading a revival movement. And it'd be easy for him to, uh, tempted, to be tempted to stay where he is and build the brand to sort of deepen the impact in this local area, to stay put and to increase his popularity. And yet, that's not what he does. You know, so often it's in moments of failure that we're, tempt- we're, we're driven to our knees to seek God. But actually, sometimes the moments of transition we have aren't in failure. Sometimes they're in success. It's much more difficult to notice those, but Jesus does notice. He's come to do his Father's will, and so he gets on his face before his Father. Notice, too, the significance of the location. It says Jesus went out to a solitary place. Now, in the original language, the word is eremos. It's the same word we've seen used earlier on in the gospel, uh, where it talks about uh, the wilderness or the desert. And this for Jesus has been a significant place again and again. The desert was the place where he first encountered the voice of God, speaking words of clarity about his identity. The desert was the place where his mission, if you like, his vocation, his calling was given to him first. It was also the place of testing and confirmation and deepening and encounter. Jesus goes back to the place where he's encountered God the most before. You got a place like that? We don't have many deserts around here. Uh, But there are places that each of us has, aren't there, where we can encounter God, where we have met God before. 
Some of us have a chair. Some of us have a room in our house. For some of us, actually, our, our sort of pathway to encounter is nature. We go somewhere. There's a hill near where I live where I can look over the city of Nottingham and pray. That's a place for me. Or it's in a particular room or with particular people. Often it's a, it's a secret place. You know, the Celts used to talk about thin places, a place where heaven, the, the sort of uh, uh, the, the line or the, the barrier between heaven and earth is so thin, we feel like we can just touch heaven. Jesus finds that place because he needs clarity from his Father. He prioritizes prayer. And what he comes out with is clarity. He says this, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Listen to that language, I must. And so often in my life, what I feel like I lack is clarity. I feel like I lack you know, conviction. I mean, I, I can talk a good game, I can shout in a sermon. Some of you experienced that. But sometimes I just I sort of oscillate, I, I stand between two different decisions and I don't know which way to choose Jesus here. Has the clarity that comes from having been in God's presence and having heard God speak. And so he's able to say, I must, I must, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Do you, see, do you hear that? There's a, there's a word there about identity, there's a word there about calling. And that conviction comes from the Father's face. And his mission, he says, is to preach the good news. I must preach the news, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Now, interesting fact for those of you who like this kind of thing. The noun, good news, occurs 12 times in Matthew and Mark's gospel, but never in Luke. Instead, Luke uses the verb, to preach or proclaim the good news 25 times in Luke and Acts, whereas Matthew and Mark only use it once between them. Why? What I think's going on is that what Luke's trying to draw the reader into is the fact that the good news isn't just a thing. It's a movement. It's dynamic. It's active. It's something that shifts and changes and is constantly progressing and moving forward. Jesus has to preach it It's something that has to keep moving on and on. It cannot stagnate. And so Jesus catches that from the Father. He says, I've got to keep this kingdom movement going. I've got to move on. And this decision to follow the movement of the Holy Spirit and to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God to the other towns puts him in direct conflict with those around him. We read that the people were looking for him and they came to him where he was. They tried to keep him from leaving them. <laughs> they don't want him to move on. They know they've got a good thing going on. They, they've learned to enjoy his ministry. They've been entertained by it and they come out to him in the morning, a couple of hours maybe after he began his prayer walk. And maybe they're wondering, what sort of miracle is on the menu today? We've seen healing. We've seen deliverance. We've seen teaching with wonderful authority. What kind of religious entertainment does Jesus have for us today? We've got to keep him close by because this is better. This is breaking up the mundane life by the Sea of Galilee here in Capernaum. Perhaps rather than taking the kingdom show on tour, Jesus could be persuaded to become our resident preacher performer. 
Now, you might argue from Jesus' perspective, this is an improvement on the response that he got in Nazareth, right? Where they were trying to tear him limb from limb, you remember that? But actually, these responses aren't so different. One scholar said, the people of Capernaum now try to keep him for their own. But the motivation behind these actions, that is to say, Capernaum and Nazareth, are similar. They both want a miracle man to serve their selfish ends. In other words, both of these groups of people want a prophet in their pocket. Someone who can stay around to wow them when they need to pick me up. It's not that they want Jesus to stay so they can learn how to follow him. They already have enough information to follow him. And plus he's on the move, they could go with him. They want to keep Jesus on their terms. Here's how one other scholar puts it. Apart from the hospitality shown Jesus by Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus' teaching and healing have not yet given rise to persons ready to reorient their lives around the divine purpose. The crowds are still potential disciples, but for now they remain intent on securing the gracious activity of Jesus for themselves. They do not understand his mission, and therefore, like the devil before them, they function as a force set on waylaying Jesus from his vocation. They want the gospel on their terms, where they're at, coming to them, and staying with them. See, the crowds Jesus has met so far are potential disciples, but what marks them out from actual disciples is that they are dead set on trying to fit Jesus into their plans rather than reorienting their plans around his mission. Instead of becoming his disciples, they're content to stay as religious consumers. And The problem with consumers is that consumption is a passive stance not an active one. Consumers are not ready for adventure. They're not capable of adventure. They can't become part of a movement because for a consumer, the two greatest goals will be comfort and control. The life of consumption is one that prioritizes safety and security. But disciples have abandoned and surrendered safety and security in order to follow Jesus, who is far greater than any safe bed or any secure house. Disciples want to be part of whatever Jesus is doing and wherever Jesus is going. So much so that they'll move heaven and earth to be part of it. They will be willing to open their minds, their hearts, their hands, their bank accounts, their friendship circle, their sex life, their past, their present and future to Jesus. If only it means staying with him wherever he would go. Because for disciples, the gift is Jesus. Not what he can do for me, not what he can make me feel, but him and him alone. Consumers are more concerned with keeping Jesus where they are than they are with going with Jesus where he is. A consumer asks, what can I get? A disciple asks, what can I give? A consumer asks, where is the show? A disciple asks, where can I serve? A consumer asks, who's on the stage? A disciple asks, where is my cross? And all of this is a huge challenge to those of us, which is all of us, whose lives have been patterned in a culture bent on consumption. Where the water in which we swim is the water of consumerism, just the right temperature to keep us comfortably numb. 
So much so that we can imagine that God's greatest desire for us would be safety. Only it's not. Jesus has not come to establish the kingdom of comfort. Jesus hasn't come to establish the kingdom of capitalism. Jesus is not concerned about whether we have the means to acquire more material possessions from this point on to the day that we die. Jesus hasn't come to establish the united kingdom. He is less concerned with whether or not we're able to sing Rule Britannia at the proms than we might be. Jesus has not come to establish the kingdom of Johnny, or dare I say it, the kingdom even of Amy. Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. And whereas we might like to contain him here for our own pleasure, our own enjoyment, our own healing, our own deliverance, what we find is that Jesus is on the move. And he's extending an invitation to the people who haven't yet heard, who haven't had an opportunity to experience his mercy and his grace and his salvation. And if we want more healing, and we do, we need it. If we want more deliverance, and we do, we need it. We're going to find it as we step onto the road with Jesus. Not as we ask him to stay at home with us. With only one fixed point. Jesus himself. And for this reign of God to be established in our time, in our church, in our nation, in our own lives, Jesus is looking for a people. He's looking to enlist a people, a weak army, as Amy has said, who relinquish their own designs for life, their own desires, their own attachments, their own addictions, for his kingdom rule to be established in their lives. A people, in other words, of repentance. A people who would be willing to say, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. What if the gift hidden in this season is that it might be a catalyst for us to move beyond a paradigm of religious consumption, passivity to one of active discipleship of surrender, of abandonment. Have you not guessed? Have you not caught the fact this is the only thing we've been preaching about all year? That it is time to move from a passive posture of consumption. We have to if we're hoping to thrive or even survive this season in faith. We've got to be willing to join Jesus where he's going and where he's going is to those who haven't heard. In this season, these six to nine months, how many, six to nine years, how long has it been? I don't know. I've been in a wilderness, a wilderness of prayer. And I, I, I would say it's been characterized as much by a sense of God's absence as it has a sense of his presence. But I've been called, stirred, moved, uh, drawn to seek his face like never before. It's not been fun a lot of the time. I've had to develop new pathways in prayer, but I've, been, I've known that that's what I've been to do, to seek the face of the Father. And I've, I've left, or I'm still in, but I've come to a deeper conviction in this time. And my conviction is that this is what we're all to do. This is the need of the season, that we become a people who are ready to build an altar in the midst of the ruins right now, to seek his face right now, where we are, whatever we're experiencing, now to prioritize prayer, to get in the wilderness, the thin place, the place of encounter, the place of hearing identity, the place of vocation, Get before God like never before. Each of us is to do that. We're to do that as a community. 
That's what this season is all about. If COVID-19 has not brought about a change in your prayer life, let me tell you, you've missed the whole purpose or at least the value of the season. But it isn't too late. It isn't too late. There is time still to seek him. Now is the time to carve out a, a place in the secret place. Jesus is calling his church into a new territory as a people. We're never going back to where we were. But the new place he's calling us into can only be accessed through prayer. It's a place that only disciples can reach. He's calling a people to do what he himself did. And that's what will ensure that we make the transition successfully. Consumer Christianity may not survive this season. I hope to God it doesn't. Who cares? But real disciples will flourish and thrive as they seek his face. Psalm 27, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Jesus is on the road to someone new. His disciples are those who abandon everything else that they might be postured alongside him and found with him. Will you be one of them? Let's pray.